from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, Matthew Kincaid, the New Orleans-based educator and activist, recently released a book, Freedom Teaching. He joins us for more on how teachers can empower their students in the classroom. Plus, following the move by Louisiana State University to remove diversity, equity, and inclusion language from multiple websites, we hear from an LSU student about the response on campus. But first. Last week, the Louisiana Supreme Court heard arguments on the fight for the incorporation of St. George, a Baton Rouge community that's been trying to become its own city for five years. Now there could be a final verdict in just a few weeks. Laura Nicholson has been covering this story for the Baton Rouge Advocate and joins us now. Laura, thanks for being here. Hey, you're welcome. It's a great day. Laura, let's start with a little history, the backstory on why residents of St. George first voted to incorporate and how that led to a state Supreme Court case. Yeah, so the effort's actually been going on since 2010. It originally started out as an effort to try to create an independent school district in the area. And since then, it's sort of evolved into this um, big campaign to create an entirely separate city from Baton Rouge. That effort had sort of apexed with a petition in 2018 to incorporate that led to the election the following year in 2019. Um, They won that election with 54% of the vote, and the election was limited to only the people who would be within the proposed boundaries of the city. And pretty soon after that election, um, Mayor President Sharon Weston Broom and the current Mayor Pro Tem Lamont Cole had sued um, to try to stop the incorporation. They claimed that about $48 million would be lost every year in annual revenue um, and would essentially financially cripple some of the city parish services. And since then, um, it's been going through the courts for five years now. Um, And two previous judges in the district court and in the appeals court had ruled in Mayor Broom and Cole's favor, saying that the incorporation couldn't go through. Um, And now it seems like in terms of the legal battle here, it's at its final step with the Supreme Court. All right. Well, tell us what's happened in the courtroom. What were the arguments in support of incorporation? What were the arguments against it? Uh, It was mostly a rehash of the things that had been heard at the district level and at the appeals level. You know, the main points that I guess were sort of debated was um, whether or not the original petition to get them on the election ballot had properly followed the rules. There's a requirement in state law that the petition needs to outline what services would be provided for the residents and how they would be provided. They did include that plan in the petition. The appeals court had said that the petition wasn't detailed enough in how they would provide those services. They also argue that um, Lamont Cole does not have standing to actually be suing um, because of his he doesn't actually represent the area St. George is in. And so they were claiming that he can't actually sue. It was something that they had brought up in the uh, First Circuit Court of Appeal as well. And they actually took Mayor Broom off of the case. She's no longer considered a plaintiff because they ruled that she didn't have standing. Um, And then in terms of what uh, Lamont Cole's attorneys were arguing, they focused mostly on whether or not the incorporation was viable, essentially, whether they the things that they were promising their residents were actually gonna, they were gonna be able to follow through. 
Um, so that's where the 48 million came back into discussion. That's where they had dis discussed whether or not they'd be able to provide proper policing and other services like that um, was sort of the point of their argument. Have any judges indicated how they might side? Any speculation over how this vote will go? I would say one justice that was, I guess, um, particularly vocal, I guess I'll say, was Justice Crane. Sorry, Justice William Crane. The way I would characterize his questions was kind of sort of pondering whether or not the courts were responsible for deciding whether or not the people in the city of St. George can govern themselves um, and was sort of making points about, you know, shouldn't it be up to the people of St. George to decide, like, um, if they're happy with the level of service that they're getting, if, you know, there are concerns about whether or not their budget is good, that's up to them to fix their budget. That's not up to the courts to decide, which I, I think the attorney for Baton Rouge had kind of pushed back on that point a little bit, saying, no, it is up to y'all to decide if it's viable. Um, you know, you guys can't let false promises be made about what's going to be provided. Um, otherwise, you know, the Chief Justice uh, Weimer, he had sort of made a few points sort of in the opposite direction, um, but nothing nothing super definitive, I would say. I, I couldn't tell you, you know, how they're going to rule in a few weeks. Laura Nicholson, reporter for the Baton Rouge Advocate. Laura, thanks for being here. You're welcome. An educator and activist who spent years teaching in New Orleans area schools and is the founder of the organization Overcoming Racism has authored a new book he says is a roadmap to reducing the impact of systemic racism in the classroom. Matthew Kincaid's book is Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism in Education to Create Classrooms Where Students Succeed. In it are the principles he developed while an educator in the Crescent City. For more on his experience in the education system and the messages he's sending in this new book, he joins us now. Matthew, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Matthew, I want to start with the, the beginning of your education journey. Can you tell us what you learned as a teacher in New Orleans and why you see education as such a powerful platform for activism? When I went to New Orleans uh, to teach, you know, there was this broader narrative in the city at this time where there are a lot of educators coming into the city with what I believe to be kind of this savior mentality. And what I learned very quickly working in the city with the amazing young people that I had the opportunity to work with, what I tell educators all over the country is that these young people are far more likely to save you then you are to save them. And so I learned um, very early on that these students were curious, they were thoughtful, they were highly intelligent and skilled, but oftentimes face obstacles inside of school and outside of school. And that's what the book is trying to rectify is making schools that actually work for and are worthy of the amazing young people across the city. What you've seen in the education system also played into your founding of the organization Overcoming Racism. What are some of the main goals of this organization? The highest level goal would be to end educational inequity and, and quite frankly, to address racism as it exists in our systems and structures across our country and institutions as a whole. I founded the organization after being a teacher and school administrator in New Orleans. We saw some really profound results doing anti-racism trainings and intensives at my school. Then I started doing the work in schools across the city. And uh, then eventually the organization started working across the country, both in education as well as in healthcare, corporations, nonprofits, is really selling this message of um, anti-racism is not just a moral priority. It's not just the quote unquote right thing to do. It's a structural priority. 
creating schools that are intentionally anti-racist um, and are culturally responsive means that our students do better in school. It means that they get to understand the intellectual contributions of people that look like them and uh, they get to become a part of that. And instead of school feeling like something that's being done to kids, it feels like something that's being done with kids. And uh, that's kind of how the organization came to be. All right, let's dive into your new book. The crux of your argument seems to be that teachers should empower students to take care of their learning. What exactly does that mean and how can teachers do that? I think it's more so about creating spaces where learning is done in partnership. Oftentimes I go into schools where the teachers hold all the power in the classroom. And so it becomes this information vacuum where students are basically passive passengers in their education rather than um, active participants in their education. And what I learned very quickly working in New Orleans schools is that our students are coming into school with all kinds of cultural wealth and knowledges they bring from their home and from their community. And so freedom teaching is really about creating educational classrooms where of course teachers are doing the teaching, but students are learning alongside one another. Students are teaching one another and students feel empowered in their education to make it their own. We're speaking with Matthew Kincaid, educator, activist, founder of the organization Overcoming Racism and author of the new book, Freedom Teaching. Now, Matthew, what do you believe students accomplish when they take control of their education? How does that lead to their success? I think that there is a huge focus in schools about just uh, knowledge acquisition. It's like, okay, I have to teach this much content over the course of the school year, which means that students need to acquire this much knowledge. And then at the end of the year, they'll take a test. And then depending upon how well they do on that test, I'll know how much knowledge my students have acquired. Freedom teaching is more about the transferals of information and acts of cognition. It's about cognitively empowering students. It's about teaching students to be critical thinkers. It's about teaching students to question. In a lot of ways, it's not just about building students' academic identity, how they see themselves in a the classroom, but also building their academic proficiency. What concrete skills can they utilize throughout their educational journey in order to not only access the information that's being taught to them, but also to apply it to their lives in a relevant way. And how can this lead to academic success? At the end of the day, they are going to have to take these, these performance-based tests. Yeah, well, the first tenet of culturally responsive teaching is academic achievement. If an intervention is not promoting academic achievement, then by definition is not um, it's not culturally responsive. And so freedom teaching is about creating rigorous, intensive classroom environments where students are taking ownership over their learning. And I think any of us who, whether we've been in a professional environment, whether we've been on a sports team, or even in our time in school, when we take ownership over something, when something becomes ours, um, oftentimes we work harder to make sure that that thing that we're taking ownership is, um, you know, at the forefront. And so academic achievement is a byproduct of students building the prerequisite skills that they need in classrooms in order to understand, interpret the subject matter, and also be able to replicate that in meaningful ways. One of the um, great level expectations I have to teach about to my seventh and eighth graders in Louisiana in New Orleans was that quote unquote XYZ affair. It's like a espionage uh, mission from like the 1700s. Well, whether or not a kid knows what the XYZ affair is, is not particularly relevant to a student's life. And so maybe some students memorize it. Maybe some students don't. Maybe they get, get the question right on the test. Maybe they don't. But if they learn ways in which they can apply historical thinking skills to their lived experience, 
not only do we find that that usually yields better academic achievement, but it also sets them up for success in future classes. You also discuss anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives taking hold of classrooms across the country. What do you believe are the consequences when we lose DEI-informed education? Well, I won't necessarily speak to what my beliefs are about that, but I'll speak to what the data says. The data says that students who are in culturally responsive environments do better academically. The data says that students have who have higher sense of racial pride and understanding of their history and where they come from engage better with their peers, both inside of their race as well as outside of their race. The data says that students who learn in ways that are culturally responsive persist in school longer. Um, you know, I think a lot of the efforts aimed at targeting these initiatives are really about um, the success that these initiatives have, especially for students who've been historically left out of the education landscape. What we're really advocating for is for students of color to have schools that feel similar to the schools that most white kids in this country go to, schools where they see themselves replicated in the instruction, schools where they see themselves in leadership roles in the school, schools in which they learn about the intellectual contributions of people that look like them, most white students in America are going to schools like that. We're just asking for kids of color to also have schools that are reflective of their cultural experience. Is this the system you used in New Orleans? Have, have other school districts adopted the system? Absolutely, yeah. I definitely use it in my classroom. At one point in time, there was just, um, we only had two history teachers, so we taught the kids half the time. And at one point in time, we we're the fourth best history department in the state in terms of our test scores and our test results. And then additionally, you know, we've seen this taking place all over the country, but I think one of the flagship examples would be at Tucson High, um, the Mexican-American Studies Program, which was an ethnic studies program in which 100% of the students who opted into that program graduated from high school, and 85% of those students went to college. Not only had they, quote unquote, closed the achievement gap, I mean, the students in that program were outperforming the mean of the, the, the school. Um, you know, the state of Arizona banned the program in 2009, saying it fostered anti-American sentiments very similar to the bans we're seeing across the country today. Every time we've seen schools and school systems lean into ethnic studies and culture responsive teaching, we've seen phenomenal data. Um, when California was doing research about whether or not they were required an ethnic studies course, they found that the most at-risk students were more likely to improve in both math, science, and English, as well as persist in school. Well, Matthew, before you go, would you break down some of your main advice for educators in New Orleans and across the country when it comes to working within an at-times failing system? Think um, about a, a quote from Dr. Mae Jemison, um, who's the first Black woman to go into space, and she says, never be limited by other people's limited imaginations. And then one more quote by Paula Freire, which says, it's imperative that we maintain hope even when the harshness of reality suggests otherwise. At the end of the day, you know, we are the line of defense between our students and all kinds of systems and structures that they will have to navigate when they walk out of our classrooms. And so when that door closes and we're in the middle of those four walls, it's up to us to make a masterpiece out of the things that we've been given. Matthew Kincaid, educator, activist, author of the book he's speaking of, Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism and Education to Create Classrooms Where Students Succeed. Matthew, thanks for joining us on Louisiana Considered. Thank you so much for having me. This was outstanding. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. 
Earlier this month, several colleges at Louisiana State University changed policy language on their websites, specifically language regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI for short, were edited or removed. Some of these changes were public, while others were done quietly. Claire Sullivan, editor-in-chief for the Reveille, LSU student newspaper, joins me now to discuss what's changed and why. Claire, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us what was changed? Tell us about the instances of language removal or editing that you found. Sure. So we found a number of LSU websites that removed uh, the word diversity and also swapped the word inclusion for engagement in lines with the strategic plan announced by our president earlier this month. In one instance, uh, the College of the Coast Environment here at LSU swapped its uh, diversity, equity, inclusion page with one titled Inclusion and Engagement. It also rebranded its diversity action plan from February 2022 with a roadmap to inclusion and engagement dated January 2024. The two documents are exactly the same except for their names and dates. So that's what we've seen in a lot of these changes is that it's kind of swapping out language in a lot of instances. So swapping diversity for engagement or swapping inclusion for engagement while still keeping some of the same content. In others, it's been a a more holistic rewriting. So when did all this start? And and are these altercations coordinated among the college or did each make their edits independently? So we've been trying to figure out um, when exactly the changes occurred. So we've been using the Internet Archive, which allows us to look back to some extent at when these changes occurred by looking at archives of the former pages. And we found through a review of those sites that most of them changed in the same few week period, starting from around October, November, December, and starting then and then going into January with the new strategic plan. And the university has said that those changes were not asked for by the upper administration. We also had a dean tell us that no one asked her to change any of the language, Um, but there has been pushback to that on campus considering the changes happened all around the same time. Right. And you see that as curious at, at the at the least. Have any DEI programs at LSU actually been shuttered or, or do these changes only extend to the language? Do these language changes actually mark a fundamental change in LSU's policies? That's something that Tate addressed Wednesday at a faculty Senate meeting. Um, at first, he said the large scale changes in language had nothing to do with professors' individual research. But that's something he qualified later on when talking to the faculty senators. Uh, He said, if you have a program that you are worried about and are wondering if you can actually do it, I think you should talk to the general counsel's office. If it's deemed legally defensible, keep rolling. If not, it's probably a linguistic twist and you need to change that language and maybe a few principles. So we're not quite sure yet how exactly this is going to affect different programs that are happening at the university. But it seems mostly, at least now, to be more of a rebranding in language um, than wholeheartedly shutting these programs down. We don't know necessarily what that rebranding will change within the actual content. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know President Tate, in, in talking with faculty last week, talked about why the move away from the term inclusion toward the term engagement, saying that engagement's an easier word to define and, and lacks the negativity that's been thrown onto the word inclusion. We're speaking with Claire Sullivan, editor in chief at the Reveille about recent changes to LSU's diversity, equity, and inclusion policies as presented on multiple school websites. Well, Claire, we've discussed what the school has to say about these changes, but what do you believe motivated LSU to make the changes? In the Reveille story, you mentioned 
a conservative battle against DEI. And we know now we have a Republican governor and a supermajority of Republicans in both houses. Yeah, DEI has definitely been a hot topic in politics as of late. Um, in Florida, for instance, they recently banned public universities and colleges from using state or federal funds for DEI-related programs. There's been similar legislation in Texas and other states. People definitely believe uh, on campus that LSU is being proactive in a sense that they're making changes before the legislature makes them have, make those changes. Um, and there has also been a lot of speculation that uh, the turn to engagement and away from the DEI language came right after Governor Jeff Landry was inaugurated. This is something that the university has denied adamantly. They've said that they've had the strategic plan and work for months and that they've not talked to any political leaders in Louisiana about the changes, nor has anyone contacted them. Still, that hasn't necessarily stopped the speculation on campus about the coincidence and the timing. What have you heard from your fellow LSU students about these changes? What are they saying? We've definitely heard a lot of backlash from students. There's a lot of people who wonder what this means for LSU's commitment to diversity. And they also wonder what it means for their own place at the university and how it might affect people who want to come to LSU. And if students are going to wonder uh, if LSU is a place that's going to welcome them and it's going to welcome the totality of its diverse student body. So there's definitely, we've seen a lot of concerns and talking to students. Um, and a lot of people kind of just caught off guard by the change and wondering why now and uh, uh, why these changes specifically. Did any particular instance of website edits or content removal stick out to you for any reason other than a change in terminology? Well, something that caught a lot of attention at LSU was the taking down of a video series, uh, Racism Dismantling the System, on the Manship School's website. Um, and they've said that that is going to return once they figure out how exactly they want to present it and contextualize it in the website. Um, but that was something that surprised a lot of the people to see those videos taken down, both on the website and the YouTube. Um, and they kind of wondered what that meant, since that wasn't just a change to um, the diversity language of a website, they wondered what that might mean for scholarship and programs related to diversity. Um, and though uh, the dean has said that that video series is going to return, it's not quite clear when, and it's also not quite clear how that presentation is going to change. Now, you mentioned the Manship School. We spoke with LSU Manship School Professor Robert Mann back in October about his decision to resign from the university in May in response to Governor Landry winning the election. With that in mind, how do you think Landry's election has impacted LSU overall? Has there been any a noticeable shift on campus? I think that's something that we're still uh, seeing how exactly it's going to affect LSU. I know Robert Mann has been vocal about his concerns about academic freedom with the new administration and the fact that uh, Landry had once asked LSU to punish him for calling one of his employees a flunky. And so uh, that raised some concerns for some faculty about, you know, if he would step in again uh, to ask LSU to discipline a faculty member. Um, and considering that he's been uh, a very vocal conservative voice against uh, a lot of the principles of DEI, I think people are wondering if we're going to see an increase in legislative action or action from his administration related to those topics. Claire Sullivan is editor-in-chief for the Reveille LSU student newspaper. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest reporter for the Baton Rouge Advocate, Laura Nicholson, educator, activist, and author, Matthew Kincaid, and editor-in-chief for The Reveille, LSU student newspaper, Claire Sullivan. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.